It's Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films as The Greatest Story Ever Hooled and They Came to Burgle Carnegie Hall. Living on through one's work, living on through one's children and one's grandchildren and one's great-grandchildren. But what happens when there's nobody who remembers you? We may remember, Troy, from such films as The Verdict Was Mail Fraud and Leper in the Backfield. What if human life were coming to an end in 30 years? Would the life of the last human on Earth be meaningful? I want to see the Troy McClure I remember from such films as Make Out King of Montana and The Electric Gigolo. <laughs> Living on through others. Our guest is Samuel Scheffler, author of Death and the Afterlife. Goodbye, Troy. I'll always remember you, but not from your films. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except. Your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our program originates at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that themselves originate at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. 40 wonderful and memorable years, I hope, John. Today, we're talking about collective immortality, living on through others. Collective immortality means that although each of us individually is going to die, the species as a whole will endure after our deaths, if not forever, then at least for a fairly long time. Oh, bully for the species, John. Frankly, though, I'm with Woody Allen. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Well, no offense to Woody, but being confined for an eternity to even a really nice Manhattan apartment like I imagine he has would get pretty boring after a while. I think you're missing Woody's deeper point, though, John. The prospect of death threatens to sap life of its meaning, and this notion of living on through others doesn't change that one bit. Well, I think Woody's wrong. Actually, the prospect of death is what gives life urgency and purpose. Oh, come on. Then why do people work so hard to avoid death? Well, people do dread death, Ken. I'll give you that. No doubt about it. But dreading death is consistent with living with purpose and determination, even in the face of death. What would really strip our lives of meaning, however, would be if we knew that nothing, nobody would live on after we die, uh-huh. if mankind would die out soon after our death. Uh, John, I, I don't want to sound callous or anything, but frankly, why should I care whether other people live on after I die and I'm not around to worry about them? Well, you care about your children living on after you and, and about other people you hold near and dear, don't you? Well, yeah, okay, sure, you got me there, but I have a personal stake in them. When you're when you talk about collective immortality, especially of the species forever and all that stuff, you're thinking about people in the distant future in whom I have no personal stake whatsoever. Come on, why should I care about them? Uh, okay, you think you have no personal stake in the existence of future generations. Let's do a little thought experiment. Suppose that tomorrow, out of the blue, some virus from outer space caused every living human being to be infertile. From that day forward, no new people will ever be born, slowly but inexorably. 
We'll all die out. Oh, John Cheapers, what's gotten into you this morning? That's a gruesome thought experiment. Well, <clears throat> take it as it is, though. Would you keep trying to finish all those books you've been working on forever? There won't be anybody around to read and appreciate your brilliance. Well, I, I think I would keep uh, writing. I'd keep writing for my own sake. I'd want to bring closure to my long-standing projects, and they are pretty long-standing. <laughs> yes, but but why? I mean, all those books you've devoted your life to will just sit on some dusty library shelf, never to be read by another human being. Nothing more than food for worms. Doesn't that thought fill you with dread? Doesn't it undermine your confidence that it's really worth writing them in the first place? Gosh, John, if you put it that way, jeepers. So you see... You do have a stake in the future of humanity, a personal stake. Look, look, I, I, I'm willing to grant uh, some of the things we do, we do with an eye toward uh, the distant future, a future that doesn't contain us or anyone we love. I grant you that. But, but it's just not true, as you seem to be saying, that everything that gives our lives meaning in the here and now is hostage in that way to the existence of future generations. It's just not true. Well, what kind of exceptions do you have in mind? Well, for example, think of the pleasures of a fine meal or a beautiful sunset or, or, or the company of your dearest friends. Those things contribute to the meaningfulness of our lives, surely. And they would still do so even if we knew that we were the last people on Earth. But could there actually be a life? I mean, a well-lived and meaningful life that consisted wholly of such pleasures? I mean, I don't think so. Well, well, why not? I don't see why not. Well, because so much of human life is bound up with the existence of future generations. And our whole picture of the world and where we are in it would lose its point if we knew there were no more people to come. Go back to my thought experiment. I mean, after a while, what was the point of becoming an elementary school teacher or or an OBGYN if there were no new babies to be delivered and children to be educated? Well, I see your point about that, but I guess it's a question of proportions. How much of our lives is essentially bound up in this way with the existence of future generations? And are those aspects of our lives that are so bound up things we could easily do without or? Or are they essential parts, central parts of the very meaning of what it is to be a human being? Well, as usual, excellent questions, Ken. To help us think about them, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, out to ask some real-life people what they themselves would do if the world were coming to an end in 30 days. She files this report. In a scene from the 80s classic Heathers, Winona Ryder's character asks her fellow high school students what they would do if the world was about to end. You inherit five million dollars the same day aliens land on the Earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days. What do you do? That's easy. I just slide that wad over to my father, because he is like one of the top brokers in the state. If I got that money, I'd give it all to the homeless. Every cent. What if you didn't inherit any money? But the world was still ending. Let's say it was ending in exactly 30 days. Would you go to work tomorrow? Would work even have any meaning if nobody existed to appreciate it in the future? I see a lot of death. I see a lot of life. That's Tamara McBride. She's a family medicine doctor at Contra Costa County Hospital in Martinez, California. I deliver babies and I help people die as well. McBride says if the world was about to end, she'd still go to work tomorrow morning. The quintessential place for a family doctor would be at the end of the world, right? I mean, isn't that would be like my swan song. 
you know, guiding people out. Like, that's what I do every day. McBride says she'd also keep delivering babies because for her, the value of that experience wouldn't be diminished by the impending apocalypse. The importance of moments doesn't lie in the length of time that you're in them, but the quality and the effort and the presence that you put into it. Now, what if instead of a doctor, you were some DJ playing music on a public radio station? Welcome one and all to Blues in the Bay Area and beyond. It just so happens our producer Devin Strolovich fits that description. Devin is the host of Fog City Blues, a music program on KALW in San Francisco. There are plenty of things I would give up, but I think the live radio show, telling stories through a sequence of songs, is categorically a pleasure that I wouldn't want to give up under almost any circumstances. Devin says his radio show would be a good distraction from the coming doom. But would people even listen to blues and jazz if the world was about to end? I think people would continue to listen. Um, you know, music has got to be one of these things that will help people in this time of anxiety. Blues may not be everyone's first choice, but maybe I would tailor the playlist to the, uh, the impending end. It's the end of the world as we know it. I started thinking, what would I do if the world was ending in 30 days? Would I continue being the roving philosophical reporter or do any journalism at all? Would I even finish this story? My answer is no. I mean, I love my job. I love radio and I love philosophy. But I wouldn't want to stare at a computer and write a script all day. I don't think I'd want to share other people's stories anymore because I'd want to savor every moment of my own family's story. I'd lounge around the house and take my kid to the park three times a day. I'd take a lot of walks. But that's just me. What would a philosopher do if the world was ending in 30 days? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Want to hear more? You can listen to the rest of this program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or, for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.